Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 9. We're jumping into verse 18 through 22. Up until this point, as you guys are moving towards this passage or looking in, in, in God's word, um, up until this point, what Luke has been doing for us is kind of giving us small glimpses of who Jesus truly is. Um, and if we look through the lens of his disciples, slowly they are beginning to see who this man is, who has power and authority over all creation, who can heal the sick, raise people from the dead. And so we get to come into an intimate conversation today, clarifying who this Jesus is. And so this is the passage that we are jumping off into today. Now, as you're, again, moving towards Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, uh, I just kind of want to give you a little bit of insight as we are seeing this clarification happen. So growing up, some of my favorite books to read, and even going back to now, um, I love to read Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's classics, Sherlock Holmes. Anybody like me reading those books? Maybe you like the movies better. I prefer Benedict Cumberbatch's versus Robert Downey Jr., but that's beside the point. So Sherlock Holmes is this fictional consulting detective who lives in an infamous apartment of 221B on Baker Street, and he uses his deductive reasoning, investigative science, and really observation, along with witty banter and sarcasm, to solve crimes that even the greatest detectives of the Scotland Yard cannot find. And one of the reasons that I love these stories and even shows similar to Sherlock Holmes is because what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle does and what many great authors and directors and creators do is they create this magnificent storyline that brings mystery and suspense to where we long for the revelation of the conclusion. And Sherlock Holmes in his stories is often showing us through his observation and through his deductive reasoning how he's able to figure out the crimes as well as who the culprit is. And it leaves you with a longing as these stories go on of clarity, of this mystery finally being resolved. Anybody else love those types of suspense and mysteries? Yeah. Well, as good as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is, or as good as the favorite movie or author that you follow or watch or read, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is better. We see this in the Gospel of Luke as he is writing to Theophilus through the lens of the disciples that they have a similar experience to us as we're reading these mystery novels, that slowly they are gaining clarity on who this Jesus is is. And up until this point, Luke has been writing this narrative, asking this question, who is this man? We saw in chapter 8, as Jesus calmed the storms, what did the disciples ask? Who is this man that can calm the storms, that has power and authority over nature? Throughout the chapter, you can see that question being asked, who has this power to heal diseases, to raise people from the dead, to remove demons? Who is this man? Luke even asked this as we read in the feeding of the 5,000. Now, even though it's not 
explicitly stated, you're supposed to continue to ask this question throughout the story. Who is this man? And really, you could make the argument that Luke has implicitly asked this question since the beginning of the book, as he is trying to show Theophilus why you should have certainty in who Jesus claims he is. But like a good Sherlock Holmes novel, the answer of who he is comes slowly, progressively, and, 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 and eventually becomes crystal clear. And this is where we are today. In our passage today, we see for the first time Jesus revealing to his disciples and really to us who he is and why he came. And the next week, we're going to take a look at the cost of following this Jesus. And yet, without supernatural revelation of who he is and why he came, the disciples as well as us cannot truly know him. And we cannot faithfully follow him as he calls us to. So my main question that we have to answer this morning is who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? So let's, let's read together Luke's revelation of Jesus and why he came to die, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And he answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised." This is God's word for us this morning. Let us go to him and ask him to reveal more of who he is and how we can know him truly. Lord, you are holy and good and righteous and full of grace. The question that Jesus poses to his disciples this morning, Lord, you're still asking us, who do you say that I am? May our hearts be stirred up to answer this rightly, that you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the one who came to, de, to save sinners like us. Give light, O oh Lord, to our text today. Help us have eyes to see and ears to hear the wisdom of your word so that we may know you truly as king and that we may have certainty in the things that you have taught us about yourself. As your servant this morning, speak through me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is for your glory and our joy that we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we just read this morning, the author of Luke gives us an intimate conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And we contrast that from last week, because if we remember Jesus feeding the 5,000, what happened when he tried to take the disciples away to rest? Even grieving the death of his cousin John the Baptist, we see the crowd coming after him. And so what Luke is trying to do is compare and contrast these two situations. Last week in Jesus' compassion, he welcomed the crowd because he saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. 
But he didn't just welcome them, he taught them, he healed them, and he fed them miraculously, revealing something about himself without even saying it, that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who came to deliver his people. Again, we see even in that miracle, Luke asking, who is this man? But we find today, Jesus is alone with his disciples. No crowds, nobody around him, just him and the twelve. And as he's praying, and he ends his prayer, which is significant, and I want us to see why in a moment, Luke gives us access to a question Jesus gives to his disciples. Look back at verse 18. Now it happened that as they were praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who does the crowd say that I am? We should know that this question is significant and for two reasons. One, this is the first time that Jesus is actually asking his disciples who he is. This is the first time that Jesus is actually asking this question to anyone. Who am I? Who does the crowd say that I am? And eventually, who do you say that I am? But did you catch this? Jesus, is all, Jesus was praying before he asks this question to his disciples. You see, this is significant throughout the Gospel of Luke because every time Jesus is alone praying, whether with his disciples or alone by himself, something significant follows. This is why I love that we read through books of the Bible because then you can begin to see themes and narratives and repetition that's happening. You can, as a reader, be on the edge of your seat because if Jesus is praying, something big is about to happen. We see this at his baptism in Luke 3. In the wilderness, before he began to preach in Luke 4, before he chooses the 12, we see him praying in Luke 6. And the most famous prayer that we should all know in Luke 22, where he's in the garden asking the Lord to pass the cup. But now here in Luke 9, we see Jesus praying and asking a question. Luke doesn't tell us what he prayed. I do have a thought that based on Peter's response, I think Jesus is asking the Lord to reveal more of who he is. And I'll show you why in a moment. But what we do know is that Luke is going to follow Jesus' prayer with a significant announcement. And it might be easy for us to recognize or it might be easy for us to kind of put this down as this announcement isn't so significant because maybe we've read this story before or maybe we are familiar with the gospel story. But you have to again put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. They've been walking with Jesus for 18 months now and Jesus has not articulated who he is. He's shown them through miracles. He's shown them from uh, healing people with diseases, raising people from the dead, but he has not asked nor has he said who he is. And yet here, in this intimate conversation, we get a confession from Peter and an approval from the Lord of who he is. And not only that, we also get a reason why Jesus came. But here we also see a shift, a dramatic shift in Jesus' ministry moving from miracles to teaching as he prepares his disciples for what is to come in Jerusalem. Everything from this point on is about getting to the cross. And we see Jesus making this significant shift beginning with prayer. 
Now, this morning, it might be easy for us to have an application that says something like this. If Jesus is praying before a significant shift in his life and ministry, how much more should we be praying? Right? How many times have you might have heard that question? But how many of us have become better prayers because of guilt? Not me. But... If we're honest, how many of us do, in fact, want to be better at prayer? Anyone? Just a couple of us? Okay, all of us. So here's my encouragement from this text, and we'll move on to this important conversation between Jesus and the Twelve. As Pastor Joe Thorne says, Jesus shows us that in prayer, it is a, that prayer is essential to our lives. Much like working out, prayer is essential to our lives, and when we neglect it, it has a negative effect on all of us, on the whole of who we are. It has a negative effect on our thoughts, our emotions, our decisions. Much like working out, it is essential to our lives. And now you may be thinking, well, Jesus is God. So, of course, he's going to be good at prayer, right? But I hope what you've been seeing through the book of Luke is that we get an access of Jesus' life to see that he is fully man. He's not just fully God, he is fully man. And so what that means is that he must be dependent upon the Father for his ministry to continue. And this is what prayer demonstrates. Dependence. Dependence upon the Father. And how often are we living lives in our own strength, in our own minds, in our own works, not practicing dependence upon the Father? How often are we forfeiting peace and trying to live a life as if God isn't there? We may not say it, but our actions will prove it. Prayer is an act of dependence. And it demonstrates that we are weak and frail. As the word calls, we are like dust. And it is in Jesus we get an example of someone who is dependent upon the Father in prayer. And it's something that we can imitate. And we can imitate because the same Spirit that helped Jesus in His ministry now lives in us. That's the Word of God tells us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now alive in us. And so the life of Jesus we can imitate. But also, we can have hope. Because even in the sin of prayerlessness, Jesus' righteousness for those who have trusted in him has been imputed to us. And so even though we fail, we can confess that failure, run to the Father knowing that he has forgiven us in Christ, and try to imitate Jesus' life. Jesus' dependency should encourage us to imitate him and run to the Father in prayer. And so we see in prayer, following, following Jesus' prayer, is this question, an important question, not only for the disciples, but also for us today. And here's how the disciples answer they answered, John the Baptist. So Jesus asked, who does the crowd say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. 
and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? What's interesting about this inflection in the Greek, this you is an emphatic you. Jesus is saying, who do you say that I am? It's not just some random question. It is a serious matter of the heart. Who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly answers, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, this same question was posed by Herod. Verses 7 through 9 of chapter 9 says, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, all that Jesus was doing, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Remember, Herod was the one to put him to death. And so Herod asked, Who is this man? Some say he's a prophet raised from the dead. Some say that he's Elijah that has appeared. Others say that he's John the Baptist. And so here we have Herod asking the same question. And we now have the disciples answering very similar to those who the crowd said he was. And what's interesting about the crowd, as we walk through the book of Luke, what we see is that every time he uses this phrase, the crowds, those who are following Jesus, those who are answering that Jesus is a prophet of old, or John the Baptist, or Elijah raising from the dead, what Luke is trying to paint a picture of is people who are uncommitted to following Jesus. We see this in John 6. John's parallel passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus tells them on the second day that they come back to find more food. He says, you're seeking me not because of my signs, but because you got your fill of bread. They were only committed because of physical provisions. The healings, the feedings, the welcoming. These people were uncommitted to Jesus, and yet they saw him and saw what he did, saw his miracles, and yet they could only convince themselves that he might be a prophet, that he might be someone who has come back from the dead. What commentaries would tell us about their answers is that the crowds thought Jesus was the forerunner of the Messiah. By giving this answer of John the Baptist and Elijah, what they were saying was he was the one before the one to come. They were unconvinced that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who would come to save sinners like us. None of them saw him as Messiah. And yet Peter, speaking for the disciples, has a response that is astonishing. This is the first time that we see in the book of Luke a human recognizing and saying, this is Jesus, God's Messiah. The only time that we've seen this answer is actually from a demon in Luke 8. No other time has a human said this in Luke's gospel. And while his answer is correct, what we see throughout the rest of the book is that it is not fully comprehended. So you see, as we walk through the book of Luke, we'll see that the disciples are still learning. They haven't fully realized who this Messiah is and why he came, which is what Jesus will explain to them in a moment. 
It isn't fully realized until Jesus resurrects. As he's walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, he meets two disciples and they still needed clarity. So Jesus tells them about all the prophets and how it pointed to him. And then he comes to the disciples in the upper room and shows them he is the true Messiah. This is significant. And I think, I think for those of us who are in here, I, I want to encourage you, if you haven't put your faith or trust fully in Jesus because you're still trying to get questions answered, look at the disciples. And not fully comprehending or not fully realizing who Jesus is, they still make the right proclamation that you are the Christ and I will follow you. And you can do the same. But think about this for a moment. This is why it is so significant and so important. Because when we look at this narrative, right, in Luke chapter 8, we see that Jesus calms the storm as the disciples are freaking out. And when he does, they ask a question. Who is this man that can calm the storms, that has power and authority over nature? How did they go from fearful disciples in the boat Wondering who Jesus was and how he could calm the storms to now rightly proclaiming that he is Christ of God. How do they do that? It has to come supernaturally. Look at Matthew's gospel of this same question. Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's answer comes only through supernatural revelation. It wasn't because of the miracles. It wasn't because of his teaching. It wasn't because of all that Jesus has done. It was because the Father chose to reveal who the Son was to Peter and the disciples. And much like us today, this is the same. Our true knowledge of who Jesus is, while sometimes incomplete, only comes through supernatural revelation of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what we call regeneration. You find this in John 3 when Nicodemus asks Jesus, what must you do to be saved? He says, you must be born again. You see, it's not just enough to know who Jesus is. We need our hearts and minds transformed we need to be made alive because sin has made us dead. And as R.C. Sproul so wonderfully puts it, regeneration is something that is accomplished by God and God alone. A dead man cannot save himself from the dead. We are not just drowning at the bottom of the ocean and Jesus throws a life jacket to help bring us up. No, it is Jesus going to the bottom of the ocean, bringing our dead bodies up to the shore, breathing new life and making us alive again that we are saved. And it is only through supernatural revelation from the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can be made alive and truly know who this Jesus is. It is the supernatural work of the Father. And as we've seen throughout Luke, Jesus does something very interesting. Jesus immediately tells the disciples, don't tell anyone. He charges the disciples to not say anything, and this is why. Because the disciples needed to be taught why he came. Look what Jesus says 
in verses 21 and 22 why the purpose of him coming and, and, and incarnating and putting on flesh as the Son of God. Jesus strictly charges and commands them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, while Peter's revelation and confession is absolutely true, it's important for us to understand the dynamics and the context of Jerusalem at that time. You see, for the Jews, they had been searching for and longing for and waiting for 400 years for a Messiah to come, for one to free them of their oppression. And yet, they misunderstood how and who the Messiah would be. They misunderstood what He would do when He came. See, I believe one of the reasons why Jesus commanded the disciples to not share who He was is because people thought this Messiah was going to come and bring them freedom. And not freedom how we think right now, freedom from oppression of Rome. Put them back into power as a great nation. This is again why John 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, John writes, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, the crowds would have sought physical freedom from oppression. They would have seen Jesus' miracles and thought, He has the power to overthrow Rome. But Jesus tells His disciples, this is not why I came. I did come for freedom. I did come to set the captives free, to heal those who are sick, to bring back the lost. But not in a way that you think. I have come to die and to resurrect from the grave three days later, bringing this freedom. Now imagine if you were the disciples in that moment. Imagine you got it right. You have said you are the Christ of God and Jesus who you have been following for a year and a half says you are right. But don't say anything. Because I have to die. And I have to resurrect. They would have been rejoicing at first and then what? Despair. Distress. What do you mean that you have to die? Tim Keller makes a great point here, not only for the disciples, but also for us as well. Jesus is saying, if I liberate you from Rome, what are you going to do about your guilt? Your emptiness, your spiritual nakedness, you're desperately trying to prove yourself. What are you going to do about the fact that your real slavery is to sin and your identity crisis within you? That's why I love what Jordan said this morning. How often we can find our identity in other things. As John Calvin would remind us, our hearts are idle factories. It is so easy to take things that God has given us as good gifts and make them into idols and find our identity in them. And Jesus tells the disciples as well as us today that we have a slavery far deeper than this world. And we need a payment to be freed from that slavery from that bondage. This is why Jesus came. To be rejected, to suffer, to die, and to resurrect. And I love, I love what Jesus says here, is that I must be crucified and I must resurrect three days later. There is certainty that he's giving the disciples just as certain as I must, must, must die, 
So certain am I that I'm going to raise from the dead. These two things are going hand in hand. He's trying to teach the disciples that this will happen, that you can have hope. And none of this is by accident. This is what the prophet Isaiah foretold in chapter 53 when he says this, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. This was the plan of God all along to redeem his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through his life, substitutionary death and resurrection, sinners would now be offered salvation Lost would be reconciled to the Father. Those who are sick would be healed. But it only comes through death. And this is the reality. This is the reality that the disciples needed to understand. This is the reality for us today. Jesus is the Messiah. Peter is correct. He is the Christ of God, the Deliverer, the one who came to save sinners like us and bring freedom, but not physical freedom. Spiritual freedom, because that is our deepest need. It is not physical, it is not financial, it is not relational. There's nothing that we can do, there's nothing that we can earn that will bring salvation to us, because we are sinners, separated from the Father, and not in right relationship with Him, and it is only through the work of Jesus Christ that we can find freedom, that we can be restored, that we can be reconciled back to the Father. And it is through his resurrection that sin and death are then defeated. And he offers this free gift of grace to those who would hear and believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not, ever, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. While this free gift of grace is offered through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, I want you to hear this this morning. It is costly. It is costly because someone had to die. And as Paul tells us in this passage, and as we will read next week, it is costly to follow Jesus because we have to deny self. We have to bear our own cross. But hear me this morning, this costly grace gives you freedom in eternity as well as here on earth. When we submit ourselves to Jesus, we are free, free from putting our identity in anything this world has to offer. 
free from trying to, as Jordan said this morning, trying to find satisfaction from other things because our cup is filled. We are free by faith and obedience to Jesus and his call to follow him. The question that Jesus asks is one that we must answer today and really every day. Who do you say that I am? See, back in verses 7 and 9, Herod, asking this question and getting an answer, is unconvinced. The ruler of the known world is unconvinced by the miracles and the teachings of this man, Jesus Christ. We also see the crowds in this story and their opinion of who Jesus is. A prophet returned, John the Baptist raising from the dead, and they're uncommitted. This crowd that saw Jesus feed them, this crowd that has seen healings, seen people being raised from the dead, and yet they are still uncommitted. And we have Peter and the disciples standing opposed to Herod, standing opposed to the opinions of the many in the crowd, proclaim that Jesus is God, that he is the Christ. Even with their understanding being incomplete, they are convicted that Jesus is the Christ of God. And they proclaim it. And this is what believers do. They stand up boldly in the interest of truth, of who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and how he has called us to live, even when it's not popular. You see, the disciples were right. And I love what Warren Wearsby tells us from this passage. The crowds had opinions, but disciples have conviction. And this is how we are to live, with the conviction that Jesus calls us to follow him, even when it's not popular. As disciples of Jesus, even when opinions go against what the scriptures have to say, we have to be faithful to him. Many people today have opinions of who Jesus is. The Muslims think he's a great prophet. Mormons don't think that Jesus' crucifixion was sufficient for salvation and that he was a created separate God similar to a brother of Satan. Many think that Jesus was just a good activist against the political realm or against the Pharisees and Sadducees of that day. He was the original rebel. Some look at him as a genie who you only go to when you need help or you need something provided for you. Some look at him as a lawyer that only go to him when they need help getting out of trouble, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Some look at him very similar to other historical leaders throughout history. It's just a good and moral man. Many, even in our churches today, look at Jesus as a lenient grandparent that just lets you get away with whatever you want because of grace. Jesus is not any of these things. Jesus, as Peter rightly puts it, is the Christ of God. He is the greater prophet. He is the greater priest. He is the greater king. He's the deliverer, Messiah, Savior, Lord. 
And he came to save sinners like you and me. And he calls us to follow him and be obedient to his commands. So my question to you this morning, again, is who do you say Jesus is? Is he Lord over your life? Or not at all? Because he can only be one or the other. For the believer in here this morning, our answer to that question, who Jesus is, should be like Peter's, that he is the Christ of God. And our witness to the world is that Jesus' death and resurrection will always be our answer. As Peter, I'm sorry, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. This is what we proclaim to the world. This is what we answer of who Jesus is. And we bear witness to his death because of what it has done for us in freeing us from our bondage of sin. And we bear witness to his resurrection because it's there that we see he had authority and victory over sin and death. And because the Spirit who has been imputed to us or given to us now lives and resides in those who believe, we have that same power. We have that same authority. We have that same victory to fight and put to death sin and the flesh and whatever this world throws at us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us, and we must live in that power. So what does your life and what does your words say in answering the question, who is Jesus? Does the way you speak, does the way you act, does the way you live, your words and your works, your faith and your actions, do they reflect this truth? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Or do your words and works reflect more of what the world says about Jesus? Do you speak of him with your lips, but not live it with your life? Do you not live a life of worship? And for the unbeliever in here, the question is also asked to you. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a good teacher, a moral activist, someone who you call when you're in need? Now, we can argue some of the things in Scripture that don't give us answers, right? How did Jesus feed the 5,000? Did Jonah actually get swallowed by a big fish? How did the sun stay more than 24 hours in the sky? We can talk about those for days. But what Scripture asks us to answer, and Jesus himself asks us to answer, is who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Because Jesus answers it. He tells us that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only way to eternal life through the Father. It is by trusting in him that you can receive the forgiveness of your sins, where you can find true joy and true satisfaction and hope in this life and life to come. So hear me. It is important that you get this question right. Because your soul depends on it. One of the tangible ways that we celebrate each week in answering this question, who Jesus is, and the freedom that we have been given as believers is by partaking in communion. 
As Paul tells us in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus lived a life that we could never live. He died a sinner's death that we so rightly deserved, and he resurrected three days later, sealing our election as sons and daughters of God. And we are now free in him. We are made alive in him. And it's because of this reality, when we come to the table, when we come to communion, we can celebrate what Jesus has done for us. The body representing the breaking, uh, the bread representing his body being broken, his blood being shed. We are reminded in drinking the juice. And in this, our sins have been covered. And the covenant that God has made with us in Christ is now sealed. So when God looks upon you and looks upon me, he no longer sees the sin that you once committed and lived in. He now sees a son. He now sees a daughter. He is now pleased in you. And you can live and celebrate in that reality. So every week when you come to this table, I hope that you're thinking about that. I hope that you are celebrating that truth, that reality, that you are a son and daughter of God and he is pleased in you. He delights in you. How often have we walked through life and lived in church where we don't actually live in that reality? That God delights in you because you are his children. So this morning as you come to the table, I hope that that is something that you can celebrate in. That you are God's children because of Jesus' work of dying a death and raising from the grave. That he took on our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness where we can walk in freedom. And we, as the scriptures say, are now spotless and clean. So I want to invite you to the table to grab the elements and then I'm going to lead us in communion this morning.